So I've been getting weird emails from Russia about my interpretation of Revelation. <laughs> Except I don't know what's wrong with it because I don't open attachments from Russia. <laughs> so. I'm serious. Yeah. Are they asking for money? No, no. It's not asking for money, not trying to get me to invest in some Nigerian bank. It's the subject line is revelation and then apparently the end time started in two thousand eight. Um, and so I'm supposed to open the attachment and read the fuller explanation, but as I said, I just have a general rule. I don't open attachments from Russia. <laughs> it's how I keep my computer virus free. <laughs> so maybe if I'm on somebody else's computer, I'll open the attachment <laughs> next time he sends it to me. So just to recap uh, where we are last week in chapter 12, we started a new section of the book of Revelation. We're starting. <laughs> no, I, I'm in. I was really impressed that I could still hear their conversation over the mic, so <laughs> pretty good. Uh, so last week we started a new section in Revelation, uh, we started chapter 12, and um, this section uh, we talked about a little last week um, is a series of visions or signs from heaven that are usually marked off by the phrase, and I saw, or I looked. Um, and last week in chapter 12, we were shown this sign in heaven, which is uh, this broad perspective of Jesus' birth with his nativity set, a, set against this cosmic background. It's as if John wants us to think about uh, the birth of Jesus not in the, the cute manger scene, but to think of the cosmic implications of Christ taking on flesh. Um, following Christ's ascension in this uh, broad view, uh, heavenly war breaks out and Satan is thrown out of heaven. And we have this moment of celebration where uh, there's doxology, there's rejoicing in heaven because Satan is no longer there accusing the people of God um, day and night. He's been thrown down to earth where we're shown him in a rage, but he's in a rage because he knows his time is limited and short. So the main point of chapter 12 we talked about last week was to show, um, to show the significance of these cosmic events and the protection of God's people against Satan because of Christ's decisive victory. Um, the purpose was to encourage readers to persevere in their witness despite persecution, and that continues to be the main purpose of the section we'll look at today, um, the first part of chapter 13. Um, last week we were introduced to the figure of the dragon um, as, the, uh, as the figure of heavenly evil, and today we're introduced to a new figure of evil, a beast called forth by the dragon from the waters who erects a blasphemous kingdom to wage war against the saints. 
So with that as an introduction, uh, let's read together. So uh, Revelation chapter 13, and um, we'll look at verses 1 through 10 today. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world and the book of, the life, book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Uh, thus far, God's word, uh, let's um, ask him to increase its hearing in our hearts. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we do worship and praise you this day. Sovereign God of the universe, Lord God, we acknowledge that you reign over heaven and earth, and nothing happens apart from your design. So as we read of this beast and of the earthly power and authority it wields, and we read of its blasphemy, and of its oppression against uh, the saints, we know that these things are guided by your hand, that this beast uh, is there but for a time, uh, and that its uh, reign is a blasphemous imitation of the true reign of our God and King, and that you will bring it to an end. Help us, uh, as John's uh, first hears, to not bow the knee to the beast, yet remain faithful to our witness, even though it might mean captivity, even though it might mean death. Help us to be those who are faithful, who endure, who persevere to the end, not because of any strength in us, but because our names before the foundation of the world have been written in the Lamb's book of life. And that is the reason why we have hope and why we have faith and why we endure. Give us insight into uh, your kingdom and to the kingdoms of this earth as we study this passage. Send us your spirit 
Teach us now. In Christ we pray. Amen. So chapter 13 uh, begins with um, this new vision John sees, and he sees a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. What is this creature? <laughs> so what's this beast? Or what is the beast? What do you think? What are we told about it? That's always a good place to start. <laughs> Not speculation, but what are we told about this, this beast from the sea? Japes. Ten horns, seven heads. See one of those crawling around? Uh... <laughs> yeah, so what, what do we think of that? Uh, what do we think of that language? Ten horns, seven heads. What is that usually? Okay, so horns, uh, this, this beast, and pride is certainly a characteristic of this beast as we see it, um, haughty. Uh, uh, horns, um, you know, how men exalt their own horns over and against the horn of the Lord. That's a good image. Yeah, Pat? It's a god with a small g. That this is a figure that um, is being lifted up for worship. And notice how um, in verse 4 it says they worship the dragon. So the dragon is the figure behind this beast, the dragon we talked about last time. The dragon's the one who's given this beast its power and authority. So through the beast, they worship the dragon, but they also worship the beast itself because it has um, been set up as a god. Well, wow, lots of hands now. <laughs> Um, yeah, so usually horns or uh, diadems refer to reign. So it can either we can either take that as a specific number of kingdoms that this um, beast ha has, or, or ten kingdoms uh, commanded by this beast, or we can also take those numbers in their symbolic reference as perfect numbers, and therefore this is a beast that uh, exemplifies. Um, universal reign or perfect uh, evil. This is a perfection of the evil kingdoms. Yeah, Mary, you had your hand up. Yeah, Daniel 7. Let's uh, flip there real quick. Because I, you know, this is one of those times where I think um, John really has Daniel in mind. Um, 
especially these sorts of uh, the characteristics, the animal characteristics of the beast, all of these show up in Daniel 7. So in, in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel's given a, a vision of four beasts, which then in the explanation or the interpretation, uh, he's told that these are these four great beasts are four kings arising out of the earth. So uh, you know, so four great kingdoms. Um, but the four beasts um, uh, so starting verse 3, four great beasts came up. Where are they coming up out of? Sea. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Um, different from one another. The first was a, like a lion and had eagle's wings. And I looked, as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, was raised up on its side. Uh, after this, I looked, behold, another, like a leopard. And then the beast with four heads and dominion was given to it. And after this, I saw in the, the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. So usually, uh, and then later on, uh, when Daniel gets the interpretation in verses 16, I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. So... Um, so we have this identification of these beasts in Daniel with the characteristics of the singular beast that we're seeing at the beginning of chapter 13. And the fact that this beast that we see in Revelation 13 is combining characteristics of all those beasts we see in Daniel. So usually the beast in Daniel are, are, are interpreted as various kingdoms, you know, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the, the Greeks, the Romans. Um, so, you know, usually those beasts are identified with particular earthly kingdoms. This beast, I mean, one of the things we think about, does this represent a particular earthly kingdom? Usually the one pointed to is Rome, uh, because it uh, exemplified many of the characteristics we see uh, of the beast here. Or is it um, some kingdom yet to come um, who has the kind of characteristics we see here? Or is this sort of um, uh, an ongoing, you know, ongoing work of evil in the world that's represented by this beast that's sort of behind. I mean, you can see it having the characteristics of all these other previous kingdoms is maybe this is the force behind all those kingdoms. So, you know, so Daniel helps us think about the beast in terms of this is a kingdom. Um, if we sort of keep, this is a, a kingdom uh, personified by all these kinds of characteristics. Yeah. So I am going to get that. Like, uh, oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, it seems like for the John the original reader, they would definitely have read it as wrong. Yeah. There would be no question in their mind that he was referring to from, I think, the seven hills of Rome, seven, whatever, and probably that's not. I do like the idea that, I mean, we, we you know, 
versus Babylon. So where Babylon stands for Rome, stands for whoever, whatever sort of forces you know, bring power. It would be that we could read it today in the story. Yeah, um, and, and one of the, I, I think you're absolutely right to think John's hearers would absolutely understand this as Rome. Uh, especially, you know, as we see this beast, so beast, think kingdom. So this is a, a kingdom, a king, um, but this is a state that combines politics with religion. And I mean, to, again, to think of what we saw earlier in those letters to the seven churches, you know, one of the reasons these churches are starting to be persecuted is because they're refusing to worship the emperor. And here we have a beast who's, who's demanding universal worship. Um, so, so I think it makes a lot of sense to, to, uh, to think of it as Rome. But then I think the enduring message is that it is uh, this, this evil kingdom persisting even behind these earthly kingdoms. Um, yeah, a, a perverted use of authority. Um, you know, if we think of... Uh, um, Paul in Romans sort of talks about you know the true purposes of the state and talks about you know why we're to render obedience because the state is there to re to restrain evil and here we have the perverted state this is a state that's um, uh, expanding evil commanding evil so it's the true purpose of what a king is supposed to do what a kingdom is supposed to be for you know the state is supposed to help uh, prevent sin, but this is a state that's encouraging sin. Um, it's the opposite of what a true state should be. Um, but I want to talk some about um, uh, so another characteristic of this beast that we haven't yet um, mentioned. Verse 3, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. What does that mean? And have we heard anything like that before in Revelation? Did you steal my notes? <laughs> you just like listed everything I had. <laughs> yeah, it's a cheap imitation of Christ. I mean, the exact same language about this mortal wound, but that's the same phrase we saw earlier in chapter 5 with this description of Christ. Uh, seeing a lamb as, as slain, seeing a lamb that has a mortal wound. Um, it has that language. It, 
uh, it, you know, we talked about Genesis 3.15 last week. And this, you know, again, Christ's birth being pictured in, in this much larger cosmic contest that, that we saw in Genesis 3.15. You know, you will strike at its heel, but he shall crush your head. And here we see that head being crushed. So this is uh, the beast, uh, though appearing strong, has already received that mortal wound. Uh, but it's presenting itself as this sort of cheap imitation of Christ. Um, you know, what a picture of, of again, kind of... Uh, and we, we don't think of earthly kingdoms sort of setting themselves up in these terms, but that's the picture John's giving us of this kind of antithesis to what the true reign of Christ will look like. Anybody else want to say anything about the... I, I was just really struck by this language that... You know, the beast is being described in the same kind of terms that we've seen Christ described earlier in the book. Um, and, you know, the cheap imitation language. Also, as it goes forward, that everyone but the princes are bowing down. And that's the real. I think people do actually then worship something else. They really do give their devotion and their their time and their energy, whatever it is. And it's just so clear here that the only people that don't aren't um, enticed by this, even though it's blasphemy. I mean, blaspheming is is kind of pretending to be God, saying things that God would. Yeah, we'll talk about blasphemy in just a second. Okay. But um, they're all they're all worshiping this. Yeah, there's a deceitfulness in this. To go back, in a you know, there's a deceitfulness in this that it is uh, in this false guise. Um, I, you know, again, to sort of think in terms of uh, I pulled up some of other places where John talks about um, antichrist. Um, Oh, I thought I did. Oh, here we go. So these are all from 1 John. Children, it's the last hour, and you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that this is the last hour. Who is the liar? But he who denies Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and Son. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So there, especially in that last um, passage um, from John's epistles, you know, the emphasis on the deceitfulness of this figure of the antichrist. And we see that in sort of capturing everyone whose name isn't written in this book of life. That they are devoting themselves to not Christ. Um, uh, but uh, Pat raised the question: What's blasphemy? What is blasphemy? Because I mean, that's if we wanted to sort of what's the the main word we would use to characterize this beast? 
Blasphemy is the word that shows up in these 10 verses more than any other. So what does it mean for the beast to be blasphemous? Okay, so putting God in derision, um, so blaspheming God, um, you know, we see that especially, um, you know, in, in verse 6, it's, it's not just blasphemous, but, you know, it's specific objects, blasphemies against God, so it's, so blasphemy is demeaning God, good, what else is blasphemy? Putting himself greater than God. Yeah, putting himself in, uh, as greater than God or in, in God's place, claiming to be God uh, um, himself. I mean, think of when Jesus is accused of blasphemy in the Gospels. You know, those accusations always come when he puts forward a claim to deity. So blasphemy involves a claim to deity. It speaks against God, so blasphemy is this uh, speech uttered in opposition to God. It's speech setting one's uh, or something up in the place of God. Anything else we want to say about blasphemy? Yeah. Yeah, that involves falsehood, um, uh, something that uh, we know not to be true. So, uh, again, to sort of think of uh, blasphemies, it's, it's giving God characteristics that the God, true God does not possess, so it's lies about God. So, uh, yeah, Jerry. When I think of it, I think of it in the sense of the unforgivable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And, um, of course, you can't, the Holy Spirit's working in your heart, you can't reject that, but he's giving this testimony to the whole world. Here is God, and the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is rejecting God's revelation of Himself and who He is and setting up another kingdom. Yeah, setting up this alternate kingdom, and we see that sort of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit here in this complete um, uh, rejection and persecution of the saints. Um, that it's he's not just blaspheming against God, but he's also targeting God's people, um, denying the work of Spirit uh, in them. Yeah, um, and here we have sort of, again, there are all these kinds of ironic connections between this beast and, and, and Christ, but here we have a beast blaspheming against God, and also um, this weird phrase at the end of verse 6, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Okay, so we kind of understand what it means to blaspheme God, but what does it mean to blaspheme God's dwelling? And the explanation we're given of what God's dwelling is here. Just in the next uh, verse, we're talking about making war on the saints. And so, by blaspheming those that believe in God, demeaning them and, and wanting them to be eliminated. Yeah, and it's the, the way he phrases it here, I think, is something really amazing to think about. That, you know, blaspheming God's dwelling. So we might think, you know, our first response might be think, oh, it's some blasphemy against heaven or someplace. But notice the explanation John gives of God's dwelling. Um, God's dwelling is 
in these people, in the saints. Um, you, you know, to sort of think about it in, in other kinds of language, uh, God's tabernacle, I mean, because dwelling, the, the word is tabernacling. Um, so it's blasphemy against God's tabernacle, and God's tabernacle are those among whom God's tabernacling. <laughs> um, uh, or maybe another place to look at this, um, the other time in Revelation that John uses uh, tabernacle as both a noun and a verb is in, in 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, he will tabernacle with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So he's giving us this picture of this blasphemy is going out against God, but it's also going against God's tabernacle, where God dwells, and where does God dwell but in his people? Yeah, I, I and I wanted, you know, I think my first impulse was to read it sort of individually because maybe I'm <laughs> raised in an individualist American culture. But I, I came down on, on exactly what you're saying that this is a corporate identification that God dwells among his people. You know, he does dwell individually in our hearts, but I think here he's really sort of speaking to that collective presence of God among his people. It's also an attack on, on you know, the, the most important element of what makes us God's people, which is the gospel. By, by being blasphemous, taking the, the significance of the gospel, the, the real significance of what Christ has done. And especially following on the, the cheesy imitation sort of death that's talked about before that, it's it's making an attempt to minimize the significance of the work of the cross, and by in so doing, it's it's an attack on the those who are saved by it. It's, attack, it's an attack on the glory of the one who. chapter, we've had the significance of the gospel of Christ's life, death, and resurrection shown, you know, in those heavenly consequences. And, you know, now that dragon's turning around and saying that meant nothing. 
you know, you know that, those events are, are meaningless. You know, didn't happen. That's not the truth. You know, it its its um, purpose now is to deny its very defeat by going after the gospel. I mean, it, to sort of see those two chapters paired against one another. One chapter we have the cosmic significance of the gospel that's led to the dragon's defeat, and now we have the dragon setting up this beast who denies that defeat. Yeah, James. Bureaucracy. Um, and it's a case that we see, again, to go back to the sort of de deceitfulness of it, it's a case we see, you know, lots of people buying into and not just, um, uh, not just the Romans, but, you know, this description in, at the end of verse 7, authority was given to it over every tribe and people, language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. So, you know, it, its authority is extended over all these people, and all these people in return are, you know, praise it. Man, this place was chaos till Rome came in and, you know, laid down the law. So you could see how, you know, it, it would be attractive um, and would have a compelling argument that would win people over. Uh, this is, man, this is powerful. This message, not so powerful. Yeah. Uh, could you say it's also a denial of heaven? Yeah. Um, I think it is dwelling in God in heaven. Yeah, to think of... Um, and even heaven on earth, you know, anything good. Yeah, it's a again as Chris says, it's a you know the denial of the gospel. So it's the you know there is no future. You know it, you know you want stability now. You want peace now. But you know, none of this peace you know some place far off into the future in some other airy fairy place. You know you want a good existence now, and we can give it to you. Yeah, Victor. Um, but historical events, um, yeah, uh, I, chief, yeah, I mean, and again, if we're taking Rome, um, I want to say it was Nero. It, yeah. 
Uh, I'm getting all my Roman history confused. There's at least one Roman emperor that claimed to be resurrected. So, um, so you could, you know, so we could point to something like that. That, and again, to sort of make this case that I'm more than just a man, I'm a god. Um, so, if, if we were thinking in terms of Romans, we could think of that. Um, but cheap imitation of, of the resurrection. Hmm. I don't know. I got to think, or you know, a fulfillment of that. Um, I think what John wants us to think about is all the ways that this beast is is mimicking or trying to set up a kingdom that is like unto Christ. I mean, if I were to read. Read just the second part of verse 7 and verse 8, at the beginning of verse 8. So listen. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. What does that sound like? I just read that. No other context around it. Sounds like Christ. Um, you know, and that's the exact same language we saw back in chapter 9. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation is going to bow and worship the slain lamb. Um, uh, so both receive universal worship. Both have authority over every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Both are slain yet live. Um, that description of Christ, even back in chapter 5, if you remember back, was sort of a weird description of Christ that had horns. Um, something we're not going to get to today, but we'll see uh, next time, is both have marked followers. Um, both, uh, you know, we've seen throughout Revelation the seal placed on those uh, who follow Christ. Next uh, week we're going to see the mark of the beast upon its followers. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it, it's opposition. It's a, a, a kingdom that um, is in opposition to Christ but tries to mimic what Christ's kingdom will be. And I like James's idea of, you know, all the things, you know, to, to use Rome, for example. But again, I want us to think it's not just Rome. It can be any kind of evil. I mean, we can think it's a broader sense of evil earthly kingdom um, existing, uh, you know, throughout the ages. But to sort of think in terms of, you know, all the things, you know, that stability, peace. I mean, to, to just sort of, isn't that what the gospel is supposed to do? It brings us peace. Um, it, it, you know, we're in turmoil, trouble, because we know our sin, and yet the gospel brings us peace, and here we have peace from a different kind of means. Um, so, you know, to sort of think of, you know, this beast short reign is this ironic mocking of Christ's ultimate reign. The American government. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I mean, I, to think of the way that we, um, our, our, our culture, you know, looks uh, looks to the state to provide us with you know prosperity material things um, you know the the way that we think it's going to solve all our difficulties and problems and sure uh, I'll buy <laughs> yeah George
there, the resurrection is a big question of that. That's intriguing. For example, quite recently in India, there was a god man called Sai Baba, very well known. He died. And uh, he had millions of followers there. Now, how do they get around this question of resurrection? He pointed out sometimes, of course, that I'm going to come back to this place at some point in time. Because they believe in that whole idea of reincarnation. He himself claims to be a reincarnation of some other strange inside our. So within that framework, they seem to be able to get around this whole question of death and resurrection. But everybody still, you know, that is a big question. So that, that is why I think at some point the beast is also going to have some kind of an answer, a false answer to that. Yeah, and I'm really glad you brought up this kind of way that, again, we can read it as specific kind of kingdoms, and in this case, I mean, it makes a lot of sense to think John's hearers are going to hear their immediate default is going to be, this is Rome. But I, I, I'm glad you brought up, uh, you know, other cultural examples. The default answer in every culture is going to be, that's this. <laughs> you know, it's the way it's it's present everywhere. We see the marks of the beast uh, um, kingdom everywhere we go, in every time period we go. Um, we, we, you know. It's again. It's sort of John's put us on this cosmic battle that's waging for a time, and I think that you know is something we haven't talked about. You know, we have that sort of weird forty-two months again. You know, we've seen that time period sort of mentioned repeatedly. It put it. There's a limit on the reign of this beast. It is a mocking, uh, uh, ironic. Uh, rule in poor imitation of the rule that Christ is going to establish, but it is for a short time, and to experience it is to is to be to experience it as, as believers is to be reminded of what the true reign is going to look like. It's a, you know, I want to, to really think of the God's dwelling place as being um, expansive in that sense. That it is, uh, it's all the saints. Um, everyone whose name has, has, you know, has been written in the book of life. Those are the saints. And then all the followers of the beast are all those whose name isn't written in the book of life. Usually we think of, you know, the book of life being presented as... It, you know, we take comfort in it here, you know, but notice that it's being used in the negative sense. You know, those who follow the beast are those whose names are not written in the book of life, which sort of goes, um, I'm glad Jerry brought up the sin against the, you know, the unforgivable sin, you know, this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's, you know, that's the, the sign that their names are not written in the book of life is because they commit this kind of blasphemy. It's a tangible sign that they are not uh, written in the book of life. I don't know if you realized how radical the thing you said earlier. Um, I think it's true. It would be radical maybe to some of our ears. I, I don't know if it would be. But the 
often in the normal translations of Revelation would appear, they try to say that beast is a nation, but it's one of our enemy nations. It's Russia, you know, the bear or something, or the Muslims rising out with their unbelief. But you said, yes, our own nation can be the beast uh, as it takes over God's place to provide for people, all those kind of things. And as Christians, we're to have an allegiance, we're told in First Peter, which we're preaching through, the state, it's God's ambassador, but that state wants to take a bigger role than God gives to it. It wants to take God's place. And we need, as Americans, need to be as loyal as we can be to our country, thankful for it, but realizing that it rises up to take the peace place. And we have to be careful and make sure our allegiance is to Christ first and higher than our nation. Yeah, and um, to really think of sort of the deceitfulness. You know, it's one thing to identify, you know, as you say, that is an evil kingdom. Um, it's much harder for us to, the kingdom we're under, <laughs> to sort of, well, you know, <laughs> it does this for us, it does that for us. And, and for these, I mean, you know, John's hearers, they're all under the Roman Empire. You know, it's, you know, those, to think back to those letters of the seven churches, they're people receiving benefits, and they're benefits to participating in this, you know, cult of the emperor. Oh, you know. You know, the state is bringing economic prosperity, and if you want to be a little more prosperous, you know, take it a little farther, you know, worship the emperor, and you'll prosper even more. So, you know, sort of over, you can see Rome overstepping its bounds. I mean, you know, but, you know, again, think about Roman history and the shift from senatorial Rome to imperial Rome, and that's the, you know, the, the idea that now you start worshiping the state. I mean, for those, these Christians, we can see that, and the warning is to us is not to be deceived. I mean, I think that, you know, if we think about this beast reign and all the ways it mirrors that of Christ, you know, it is deceptive. Um, and John's warning uh, is don't be deceived. <laughs> Perk up, uh, you know, that, that verse in, in verse 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Where do we hear that phrase? Yeah, it's, that's the refrain that's in all the letters to the seven churches. Wake up, churches! <laughs> you know, who are you following? <laughs> who are you going to obey? Are you going to persevere? Are you going to endure? Are you going to succumb to these deceptions of the state that wants you to worship it? Or are you going to remain faithful to Christ? Yeah, Vic. The kind of things you want to interpret these, you know, in, in, in the past, you know, that we live in, I'm looking from the 1647 Westminster Confession, chapter 25 of the church, section uh, 6. Uh, it goes this way there's no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, nor can the Pope or Rome in any sense be the head and head thereof, semicolon. We cut out the Pope as Antichrist. That's man of sin and son of perdition that exalted himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. This is very interesting. There's a lot of history and national and national history. 
And, you know, just as we can read um, uh, the kingdom of Rome and John and say, boy, that makes absolute sense for this beast. I, I you know, I've read a lot of Calvin and I under, absolutely understand why he says the Pope, that's the Antichrist. <laughs> this Roman Catholic Church, that is the beast. Um, yeah, it is the way we, and it's always our tendency to read our, you know, this is the moment. Whereas I think, um, you know, John's encouragement is whatever moment Christians are in, they've got to endure. And, and the reason why, I, I think that's one of the reasons why I don't want to limit the beast to one particular person or kingdom. Um, I mean, I think it does refer to uh, to John's hearers, you know, it does refer to Rome, but I, again, this beast is more expansive than just any particular kingdom. Yeah, I think that you know, like John can be right that Rome, you know, Calvin can be right that the Pope is Jared can be right that the president can become, you know, the beast if we let him, you know, be treated that way. So I think those can all be true. You know, but that doesn't mean that we're going to say, okay, therefore the beast is the Russian bear or whatever. You know what I mean? But, uh, I mean, at the time, could it, you know, did the Russian government, you know, have aspects of the beast of the Chinese government that stopping that church that was praying for? Is that acting like the beast? Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, the, the main message is what we get in verse 10. You know, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. We see the beast op operations and, you know, our call is not to be deceived by it, not give in to it, not to surrender it, but to endure in the faith. Uh, I mean, that's, and that's, you know, that's the call that Christians in every age, we have to endure in the faith. Yeah, Jerry. To me, it seems like, and I really appreciate this because y'all me think it through, but the scripture tells us that, uh, you know, Satan will appear as an angel of light. So that in any culture at any time, he's working in a separate kingdom, a kingdom different than the kingdom of God. And then other kingdoms, which are lusts and we live in and breathe in, are always wanting to take our allegiance. And they might even be used for good, many good things. But we always have to be careful that we don't, even if it's a beautiful kingdom, you know, it's still not God's kingdom. And we always need to be aware of that. Yeah, what, what citizenship, <laughs> you know, where does our citizenship lie? Does it lie with these other kingdoms that can be beautiful but ultimately are not the kingdom of God? Or, you know, is our allegiance to the king? And are we willing to, um, to hold to that allegiance even to captivity? Even if it means being slain by the sword, um, you know how far are we going to maintain our allegiance to the king in the face of this false king, this false beast? Yeah, I can see so clearly how um, it's one thing for me to have allegiance to the king; it's another thing for me to preach that to my people that I come in contact with every day. Who seem to be on the outside seem so sufficient. They seem like they've got it all together. 
challenges to providing for all their needs because they seem like they're individually. We like our king. We don't need another one. Or I, I'm okay, you're okay. Yeah. As opposed to, I know that I need God for, for myself in order, you know, in order to be saved, but I also need to you know, preach it to them and see that, you know, that it's a facade you know, uh, that's not really meaning, you know, what, it's not meaning what they actually do. Yeah, and to go back to what Chris said earlier, um, you know, the assault is on the gospel, and especially the exclusive, in our culture, the exclusive message of the gospel. You know, that, well, that's okay for you, but I've got my own path. And, you know, what we're being presented is the exclusivity of these kingdoms. Book of life. <laughs> you know, there is a role, there is a membership of this kingdom um, that we are unable to pencil our names in ourselves. You know, we have to have God work that in us. Yeah, Pat. It's really interesting that verse 7 that this beast was allowed to make war on the same So in this situation, God is giving all of his authority and all of his power, and the Christians are being killed. Yeah. So it, it makes me think once again of that believing in the unseen, believing in God's justice, believing in God that he is real amidst this beast that has all of this power, all of this authority, that would be incredibly luring to go for that because it's in today's world that looks successful. Right. This that looks like you are following something that you're just gonna get killed. Yeah, that is a king, and it's a kingdom who that's exercising power and authority in the way we think power and authority I mean, in, in the ways we think power and authority are exercised. And the kingdom John's been showing us is this kingdom that has the opposite. You know, the, main, the way to achieve uh, victory is through sacrifice, is through giving yourself up, uh, up to death. That's how you win. Um, that is totally backwards from, you know, the way this kingdom that we see of the beast um, and, you know, just to end, because um, we, we hit our time, the, the emphasis, you know, I'm realizing as we go through this, every time I see, you know, 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, that is always bad. <laughs> you know, or bad things are always happening to the saints in that period. Um, so, you know, there's that, you know, that part of me is like, ooh, <laughs> that, is, that is not the time <laughs> to be in. But, you know, I think the emphasis on naming that time, limiting that time, is, is that it's short. That it is brief. It is only for time. There's a limit set to it. God has given this beast of power and authority, yet there's a limit. Um, there is a, a, a hedge about it, and our our duty as saints is to endure until that time is up. All right, well, let me close us uh, in prayer. Almighty God, our King, we do worship you and praise you. 
and give our allegiance to you. That though we are subject, and you instruct us to be subject of the kingdoms of this earth, that you have given us these kingdoms um, for our good, we know that uh, because of sin, that these kingdoms become perverted against you. And that we see here in the working of this beast, a kingdom that, uh, that turns its duty to uh, protect people into a way, a means to destroy people by turning them away from the gospel and from the true God. Uh, Lord God, it is so easy for us to be swayed um, by the kingdoms of this world and the, especially the uh, mechanisms of the kingdoms of this world, but you remind us that we belong to a different uh, polis, a different government, a different means of the exercise of power. And as we bear testimony to those uh, outside our kingdom, those outside the bounds of, of your church, that we are called to, to testify to the truth of your kingdom against the kingdoms of this world, that you would help us to not just say it with words, but to model how the gospel uh, has wrought change in our lives, and that the gospel is true to us, and that we will not surrender it, even if it means uh, sacrifice, even if it means imprisonment, even if it means death. It's hard for us in our culture to, to hold that, but um, we thank you that you um, around the world now have Christians who are enduring, who are persevering in the face of evil, and especially of evil uh, conducted and wrought against them by their own very government. Um, uh, thank you for the blessings that you've given us um, to live in the government that we live under, but help us not be deceived. And help us not uh, put our trust in these earthly kingdoms, but help us to also endure, also to persevere in the face of the deceitfulness of the kingdoms of this world. Help us worship you now in the coming hour, we pray. Help us to give you all glory, laud, and honor, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.